This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. If you are unfamiliar with the book of Jude is, just go all the way to the back of your Bible, find the book of Revelation, and then just go a little bit before that. Uh, it's, the, it's the second to last book before the Bible. It's a very small book, only one chapter. And what we do, if you're new here uh, to Christ Church, what we do as a church is we typically just take a book of the Bible and work our way through it, kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We do that because we want to let God set the agenda for what we talk about. And so sometimes there are things we talk about, like last week, we just saw this beautiful description of what it means to be a Christian. And it was just sweet. It was sweet. I, I call those sermons kind of dessert-like sermons. Uh, they, they're just easy going down, and we enjoy them. And then other times, as we let God set the agenda what we talk about, we come to sermons and texts that are a little more, I'd say, uh, vegetables. Uh, they're a little bit harder to go down, but we know we need them because they are for our good. And so I just want to be upfront for you. We have a vegetable sermon this morning. Uh, but God is up to good as he gives us this word. We are in this series because the book of Jude is all about keeping the faith. It's all about protecting what is precious. So last week we saw uh, Jude lay out this beautiful description of something so precious, what it means to have an identity in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4 as Jude tells us the reason that he is writing this letter. And as we hear Jude give his reason, we understand God's reason. Because while Jude is the writer, God is the author. And these words are his words of revelation to us. Let's go ahead and read in Jude. I'm going to begin in verse 1 so we get the context again. But our focus today is going to be in verses 3 and 4. Let's listen to God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. I was at a conference and I really liked how one of those uh, speakers led the congregation in praying and so here's what I encourage you to do everyone bow your head bow your head and just pray that God would speak to you as we begin to open up his word together just take a moment and pray for yourself now please pray for me that I'll be strengthened by the spirit to speak clearly about God's word and that I would be helpful to you this morning. God, we love you. 
We are here to hear from you. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, which inspired you to write these letters, would you now indwell us and empower us to hear what you have to say, that our hearts might be full in Christ. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen. I was recently in Florida on a ministry trip with my family, and at the end of the trip, we had the opportunity to extend it and spend a couple days in Disney World, which was amazing. We made some incredible memories there. But if you know anything about Disney, you know it involves a lot of walking and a lot of sun. Now, I'm not complaining at all, but what I quickly realized was moments where we were able to take a break and sit down in the shade became very treasured times for me. On the second day, we were halfway through our day, and it was very hot, and I was hungry. We had just finished a ride, and lunch had been planned in the shade, and so I was very eager to sit down and be refreshed. But as we were walking to where we were going to go eat, all of a sudden I heard Angie say, Jeff, I don't see, and she gave the name of one of our children, who she couldn't find, and I will not share their name with you, to protect the guilty. But in that moment, even though I had been very eager to eat my lunch, my priorities shifted. And an urgency took over as I began to scour the area for my lost child. We found them and they were fine, but you can imagine just the pit you get in your stomach when when those few moments are there and you think that they're in danger. We respond with urgency when something precious to us is in danger of being lost to us. What Jude is saying in these verses is that he had been very eager to just enjoy reflecting on the good news of the salvation that we have in Jesus. He just wanted to sit down and be refreshed by the truths that we we talked about in verses 1 and 2 last week. But his priorities shifted when he saw that there was something precious that was in danger of being lost. He says, I want to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith. That word contend is a translation of the Greek word, uh, which means to, from which we get our word, to agonize. To agonize. In ancient Greek literature, it was used in both military and athletic context. It means to fight or struggle with intense effort. What Jude is calling us to here, what God is calling us to, is to fight for the faith. This word contend suggests that it will not always be an easy battle. Sometimes it might be agonizing. But just as I couldn't sit down and not care about fighting to find my child, so too we cannot sit down and not care about fighting to keep the faith. Because what God has done in Jesus is just too beautiful, is just too precious to be lost. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, called to contend. Called to contend. And I want us to see four things in these two verses. I want us to see what we are to contend about. Two, who we are to contend against. Three, why we need to contend. And then four, how we should contend. So first, what we are to contend about. Jude urges these people... And through him, God urges us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered 
to the saints. Now, this is a remarkable statement that really presents a challenge to us in our contemporary mindset. We live in a postmodern era where reality is determined by the individual. There's no such thing anymore as objective truth. There's just people's own feelings that determine the truth for themselves. And so we don't naturally accept things as being once and for all delivered. Rather, we like to think of things as being open to interpretation as we ourselves determine. I think about the argument that the great philosopher, Ricky Bobby, played by Will Ferrell in Talligator Nights, think about about that argument he had with his wife as they both argued about how to picture Jesus. Ricky Bobby says, I like to picture Jesus as little baby Jesus. You know, and his wife's like, no, I like to picture Jesus as very formal and wearing a tuxedo. And they're, they're making up their own versions of Jesus. And it's done for humor, but it really captures the spirit of our age. I can't tell you how many Bible studies I've sat through, and fortunately none here, but where people just go around and talk about what this passage means to them. And they seem to just be making it up as they go. But what Jude is saying here is that Faith is not something that we get to individually determine. It's not just what it means to me. It's been delivered to us, which means that it does not come from us. It's not ours. It's been given by God, and so we don't get to determine what it says. Rather, we are to receive the message that God has given. And his message hasn't been given partially, with more parts to follow. No, the faith has been delivered once and for all. In the Old Testament, the books written before Jesus, there was progressive revelation. God revealed himself more and more progressively over time through the prophets. But now that Jesus has come, Jesus is the full and final revelation of God, for he himself is God. And so the Christian faith has been once and for all delivered because the one that we are to have faith in has come. And the central message of Jesus is given to us very clearly. We're told this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Or in the words of Jesus himself, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, this is what we are to contend about, the faith that we are to have in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That he lived the life we could not live. That he died the death that we deserve. That he rose to new life so that we can have eternal life with him forever. Forgiven of our sins and adopted as God's very own children. This is the gospel of Christ. This is what we are to contend for. But sadly, so often, many Christians can choose to contend for other things. I mean, I just had to get off Twitter because I'm so tired and tempted by seeing Christians contend For secondary matters. Let's not talk about other people. Let's let's just think about ourselves for a moment. 
sometimes we can be tempted to fight for the wrong things too, can't we? Just think about this for a second. What are you known for? What would the people who, who know you, maybe on your block or in your workplace or in your family, what would the people be around, who, who are around you, what would they be clear about? Oh, they, they really care about this because they're willing to fight for it. I'm going to step on a little toes here, but there's an election year coming up next year. And it's shaping up to be a doozy, isn't it? Friends, if people are more aware of who we think should be in the White House than the king we believe is sitting on the throne of heaven, if they're more aware of our opinions politically than what we are believing theologically, we have lost our way. And we are fighting for the wrong thing. Listen, we can have opinions. Hang out with me. I have opinions about all kinds of things, which I'd be happy to tell you at any time. But we're not called to contend for our opinions. As Christians, there's only one hill that we should be willing to die on, and that hill is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We contend for the faith that has been once and for all delivered. We need to be clear what we contend about. And we need to be clear who we are to contend against. We aren't just fighting everybody, the blindfold on, just swinging a bat away. No, we deal with different people in different ways. Let's look at point number two, who we are to contend against. Jude is actually very clear about who we are to contend against. Look again at verse 4. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice how Jude describes these people. They are ungodly, meaning they are people who want to do the opposite of what God wants. Now, that's everybody. That's all of us. Because we're all born with our hearts bent against doing what God wants us to do. But Jude gets more specific as he says these ungodly people have crept in unnoticed. Where have they crept into? Well, Jude is writing to a community of Christians. And so he's saying that these ungodly people are those who have crept into their Christian community. In other words, Jude is not writing about those who are outside the Christian faith. Jude is not calling these Christians to go fight atheists or go fight against people who believe in other religions. He's not saying contend against unbelievers. He's saying contend against those who claim to be believers in Christ, but are not actually willing to follow Christ. And this distinction is so important, because too often as Christians, we can get combative with the wrong people. Friends, we don't fight for the gospel against unbelievers. No, we share the gospel with those who have yet to put their faith in Christ. We share it with compassion. We share it with kindness. Our manner should be patient. Our tone should be soft. How did Jesus deal with the unbelievers of his day? He was called the friend of sinners. That's how non-Christians should think about us. I hope that we have lots of friends who do not yet believe in Jesus. But how did Jesus treat the false teachers of his day? Jesus was not called a friend of the Pharisees. No, he called those people out. He contended against those who were claiming to be representing the faith, but who actually were undermining it 
And that's what Jude is saying here. We don't contend against unbelievers who deny the grace of Christ. We contend against those who, in verse 4 says, pervert the grace of God. The grace of God is God's undeserved favor by which sinners are forgiven through Jesus Christ who came and took our place on the cross. And so the grace of God is another way of saying the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us. It's another way of saying the faith that was once and for all delivered. And so these people who have crept in, they were not saying there's no grace in Jesus to forgive sins. They were not denying the gospel. No, they will have affirmed the gospel. But they were distorting it and twisting it and perverting it. Not by denying its truth, but through living sinful lives. And so that's who we're to contend against. We need to be clear, the greatest threat to the Christian faith is never from without us. Let's stop whining about the media and how we're represented in the media. Right? That's not our, our greatest threat. Right? The greatest threat to the Christian faith never comes from without, it always comes from within. That's the consistent message of the New Testament. We need to contend for the faith in here. We need to contend against those who call themselves Christians but who pervert Christ's message. Why? Why? Why contend for this? I mean, we live in a culture where uh, you just do you is kind of the ethic of the age. Right? We don't contend for anything. Right? Why is Jude saying that these people that he's writing to, and why is God through him talking to us, saying that we, we shouldn't just let false teachers do them? And just, hey, as long as I'm good, I don't need to worry about that. Why, why do we need to contend for the faith? That's our third point. Why we need to contend. The reason we need to contend against things that subvert the gospel is because subversion to the gospel is like acid. Over time, it will eat away at its fact, uh, foundations. Over time, if not dealt with, subversions to the gospel will erode the gospel that we are to have faith in. You can't say you believe in the gospel of Jesus and live in ways that contradict its truth without that having an effect over time. Jude says that there's an effect that these false teachers are experiencing. He says they are designated for condemnation. I'm going to get into that more in the coming weeks because this is a theme that Jude will revisit. But what we need to see here today, friends, is that the stakes are high. What these false teachers were teaching was not benign. No, it was leading to condemnation, which is the judgment of God. To distort the gospel leads to losing the gospel. And friends, without the gospel, we are people who stand condemned. And so we need to contend against anything that subverts the faith that has been once and for all delivered. We see the Apostle Paul doing the same thing in Galatians chapter 2. If you're familiar with that, in Galatians 2, when the Apostle Peter was perverting the grace of Christ through treating people who are racially different from him, with racial prejudice, Paul confronts Peter and says this, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now Peter had not denied that Jesus died on the cross for his sins. He wasn't denying that truth. He had not denied the content of the gospel, but the life he was living was a contradiction to it. Racial prejudice is out of step with the gospel. To treat people differently based upon their ethnicity is to contradict through your actions what Jesus did for everyone on the cross. And so to accept 
prejudice. To just be okay with treating people unequally is a denial that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's, it's not a denial by saying that didn't happen, but it's a denial by distorting the truth of how it's meant to affect our lives. James chapter 2 talks about how the gospel is distorted through exploiting the poor. The poor. I, I could go on and list other examples, but the idea is that th- there's the gospel truth, and then there are the implications of the gospel truth. And when you start compromising the gospel's implications, over time you'll start eating away at the gospel itself. And we need to understand that rarely will outright attacks on the gospel succeed because we see them coming. Right? If someone comes in here and says, Jesus didn't die on the cross, it's like, well, I know that what you're saying isn't true. But it can be the downstream subversions that get us. Because those are the things that can creep in unnoticed. We're not even aware they're happening. But over time, we just start accepting some cultural norms that are a contradiction to the gospel. And the more we accept those cultural norms, eventually we'll become close to losing the gospel itself. Paul said that's what happened in Galatia with racial prejudice. James said that's what happened in the letter he was writing with the exploitation of the poor. And Judas saying that it happens here with the people that he's writing to with the way that they were thinking about sensuality. What the Bible calls sexual immorality. What's the connection between sex and the gospel? What does one have to do with the other? Well, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gets asked a question about divorce. And through his answer, he teaches us something very profound about sex. This is what he says. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Right here, Jesus affirms the unbreakable covenant of marriage. Elsewhere, he'll give some provisions for divorce, um, which is a different sermon for another day. But, but Jesus affirms that marriage is, is never meant to be separated. But notice, he doesn't just answer a question about marriage. He goes back to God's original intention and design for sex. Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says, man shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That one fleshness speaks to their legal and spiritual union, but also their physical union. And so what Jesus is saying here is that sex is, is to be between one man and one woman who are joined together in the covenant of marriage. And Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, tells us why God designed things to be this way. Again, we read, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, God's original intended design. And it goes on to say, this mystery is profound. So what God has done through the two becoming one is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, God created sex within marriage to teach us something about Christ and his relationship with his people, the church. See, sex is an act, but it's also a symbol. Kind of how, like, the American flag is a piece of cloth, but it's also a symbol of our country. It points to something greater than itself. Sex is meant to point us to something greater than than ourselves. And Ephesians 5 tells us that there's really two things that sex is pointing to. First, it points to the spiritual reality of our covenanted reunion with Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus, we become united to him. We become one with him. 
We are two who become one with Christ. And this union with Christ, friends, this is the basis of our salvation. This is not something that doesn't really matter. No, this is the only reason that we're going to be able to stand before God and not be judged for our sins. Because when we are united by faith to Jesus, God will not judge us for our sins because he'll see us as having already paid for our sins. Not because we paid for them, but because Jesus paid for them on the cross. And when we're united to him, then what he has done gets applied to us. And when we are united to Jesus by faith, God sees us as clothed, not in our sinfulness, but in Christ's righteousness. We're not just forgiven of our sins. We are given, credited to our account, the active obedience of Christ. We are seen as righteous before God. And when we are one with Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that we'll never stop being one with Jesus. We're united by covenant, which is an unbreakable bond. And so this is why sex is only to take place within the covenant of marriage. Because the oneness of sex is meant to point to the spiritual reality of our oneness with Christ. And so any sexual activity outside of marriage is saying that we can be united to things other than Christ. It's saying that we can be joined to Jesus and still cheat on Jesus. And that's perpetuating a lie. Sex in the covenant of marriage points to our union with Christ in the covenant of faith. That's the first spiritual reality. The second spiritual reality that sex points us to is how the gospel bridges the differentiation that exists between us and Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 says, husbands reflect Christ, and wives reflect the church, the people of God. Right? There's a fundamental difference that exists between Christ and the church. We are not Christ, and he is not us. But that difference is bridged through what? The gospel, what Jesus has done for us. And what we see being taught here is that the differentiation between Christ and the church is meant to be reflected in the fundamental differentiation between male and female, between husband and wife. If you lose the male gender in marriage, you lose the picture of Christ. And if you lose the female gender, you lose the picture of the church. And so the symbol of union through differentiation breaks down. And so any sexual activity that's outside the covenant of marriage, marriage is defined by God between one man and one woman, any kind of sexuality that's used in other ways is defined in the New Testament as sexual immorality or sensuality. Not because God's just arbitrarily making stuff up to mess with us, but because sex is a symbol created by him to point to the gospel. And when you mess with the symbol, you dishonor what it is symbolizing. Kind of like how to burn an American flag is not just about burning a piece of cloth. You're making a statement about our country if you do that. This is why Jude will go on to say these people who are teaching a false sexuality, they weren't just teaching a false sexuality. What does he say they're doing? He says they are denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, to disrespect a symbol is to disrespect him. And so as Jude sees these people creeping into the church, calling themselves Christians, but teaching something different about sex than what Jesus taught, Jude was not okay just agreeing to disagree with these people. He was not okay saying, hey, we're all Christians, we believe in Jesus, we believe different things about sexual ethics, but that doesn't really matter. Jude is saying no. Sexuality is not a secondary issue. Like racism in Galatians 2, like how we treat the poor in James 2, sex is a gospel issue. 
and we need to contend for the faith. Now, I know that all this sounds very hard to our modern ears. Let's be clear, it was hard back then, too. If you know anything about the Roman culture, they are even more sexually permissible than we are now. So, so the, the, this, this being hard is not a new thing, right? Jesus' teaching on God's design for sex has always been radically countercultural. I mean, after Jesus gets done teaching on his views on marriage and sexuality in Matthew 19, his disciples literally say, hey, if you teach this, uh, I don't think anyone's going to want to follow you. And, and, and Jesus is like, that's okay. He, 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 he's not worried about that. Why? Because he wants what is best for us. See, often when we hear these things, it sounds like God is taking away our freedoms. But I think it's very important that we have a biblical definition of what freedom actually is. The lie that Satan told Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden, and that's still with us today, is that freedom is the absence or the, 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 the ability to, to be free from all restraints. And so Satan says, why, why, why would God say you couldn't eat from this tree? God's holding out from you. You should, be, you should be free from that. You should be free from that. You know, you should live with the ethic of no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, right? Let it go, let it go. Get that line in there. It's a little, little, little Disney dig. Um, this is how we think about freedom in our culture. We think of it as freedom from things. But God defines freedom not as freedom from, but rather freedom to. It's not the absence of restraints that truly define freedom, but the presence of the right restraints that free us to experience the highest version of ourselves. Think about it like an athlete or a musician. LeBron James is free to play the game of basketball in ways that no one else can. Except Michael Jordan, who, yes, was better, and I'm happy to debate that after you. That's an opinion, but it's an opinion that's right. Um, but LeBron James is free. He can do whatever he wants, basically, on the basketball court. Right? Yo-Yo Ma is free to play the violin in ways that are incredible and beautiful. But the only reason they are free to do those things is because they have accepted other restraints in their lives. When their friends were out playing, they were practicing. When others eat whatever they want and do whatever they want at whatever hours they want, the highest performers in athletics and in music are not free to do whatever they want. They limit their freedoms so that they can give expression to the highest form of who they can be as an athlete or a musician. And so it's not the absence of restraints that frees them, but the presence of the right restraints that frees them to be the best version of themselves. Friends, in the same way, God is not trying to hold back on us as he shares these things with us. He's trying to free us to know the beauty of Christ and who we can be in him. I love how Rachel Gilson says it in her excellent book, Born Again This Way. If you haven't read it, I would commend it to you. As we deny self, we don't become less of who we are. We become more of who God created us to be in the first place. We don't become less of who we are. We become more of who God created us to be in the first place. Or as Pastor Daniel Aiken says it, freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do whatever I want, but the power to do what God says is best. Friends, God doesn't want anything 
to come in the way of us knowing the goodness of the gospel, of believing and trusting and rejoicing in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who we can be in him. And so this is why Jude found it urgently necessary to call these people to contend for the faith because the goodness of Jesus is too good to let go. And friends, we need to know, as we think about this, this isn't just the goodness of Jesus for us. This is the goodness of Jesus for others. Let's be clear, friends. There's a hurting world out there. There are so many people who right now are trying to fulfill themselves sexually in all kinds of ways that will never satisfy them. And if they come to the church and see the church living and affirming the same sexual ethics as the culture with their little Jesus sticker on, we will forfeit our calling to be a place of healing with the gospel. Yes, Jesus calls us to hard things, no doubt. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus wants us to lay down everything about ourselves, to lose ourselves to him and let him define us. Friends, that's hard. If you think following Jesus is easy, you're not doing it right. It's hard. But as we lose our lives for him, friends, that's how we find our lives in him, which is the best kind of life that there is. And so for the sake of our souls, for the sake of hurting people who need the hope of Christ, and for the glory of Christ, we need to contend for the faith. That's why we need to contend. Final point, how we are to contend. I'm going to be quick here because the reality is the rest of the letter kind of unpacks how we are to contend. So if you want to know how we are to contend, just come out for the remaining three weeks of this sermon series. But I do want to give you some handles on how to apply this because what I don't want to do is have this sermon send you like half-cocked, uh, going onto social media and starting all kind of Facebook battles about what God says about these things. Like, please don't do that. Um, I have zero evidence that anyone's mind has ever been changed by anything they read on social media. You know, so like... Don't get into battles on that. You have better things to do with your time. You know, stick to posting pictures about your food. It's a whole lot safer, okay? Jude is writing this and calling them to contend for the faith with, with people who are in their midst and we're seeking to influence them. And so the first way that we kind of think about how, this, how we should call, call, call to contend the faith is this, that we need to resist false teaching that can creep into our lives. We contend for the faith by believing what is true about the faith. We contend for the faith by not letting the culture define how we think through life, but letting Christ define how we think through life. So we need to hear his call. We need to see that what was creeping into these people, let's be honest, friends, it, it can creep into us. It can creep into me. Like we all need to be careful to notice what we can be tempted to let go unnoticed. We need to be, pay attention to what we believe. And we need to continually bring our minds and hearts and lives under the lordship of Christ by listening to his word. We contend by believing what is true and living in what, in what is true. Living in obedience to what God says is true. And we contend by leading others into what is true. There are people in your life who identify as Christians, as followers of Jesus, or who don't follow what Jesus taught about the connection between sex and the gospel, 
then I don't think what we can do is just be like, okay, well, them do them. You know, am I my brother's keeper? Who said, am I my brother's keeper? Cain, after he had killed his brother. Galatians 6 says, if anyone's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should seek to restore them in a spiritual uh, spirit of gentleness. Friends, we do have a responsibility for one another. It's not a responsibility. We can't make decisions for people. People are going to do what they want to do. But we are to seek to use our lives to influence them to go in the way that God wants them to go. So if someone in your life is claiming to be a Christian, again, I'm not talking about an unbeliever. If an unbeliever, just share the gospel with them. But if someone's saying that they're a believer in Jesus, but not affirming what Jesus says about how we're to think about these things, then I think the most loving thing to do is do what Priscilla and Aquila did with a guy named Apollos in Acts chapter 18. This guy named Apollos who said he was a follower of Jesus and was teaching a bunch of things about Jesus, but he wasn't fully getting all the implications of what Jesus has said. And so this is what Apollos and Priscilla did. Acts 18, verse 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love that. They didn't get into this big public debate. They didn't shame him and try to win an argument. They took him aside. Privately, personally, in the context of their personal relationship with them, they sought to teach him the way of God more accurately. Friends, this is what we should do. Maybe the person you know just doesn't understand the spiritual realities that sex points to. Maybe they, they feel like it's just God kind of making stuff up or they feel like it's culturally informed. They, they just don't understand like the biblical theology that I just took a few minutes to walk through and also go preach the whole sermon on. Like, they don't understand how, how the gospel connects with our sexuality. So just explain the way of God more accurately to them. If you have questions about how to do that, myself or any of the pastors here would be happy about how to engage in those conversations. I also want to say, if you're listening to this and you're not sure, if you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not sure you're, you're, you're picking up what everything's, you know, it's getting put down here. Um, so grateful you'd be here. So, so grateful that you would be willing to listen and sit through this. If you have questions, um, I want to say, first of all, this is important. I don't think this is something we can agree to disagree on. Um, Jude is saying this, that our understanding of sex is connected to our understanding of the gospel. He's saying, contend for the faith. Why? Because you're not thinking about the way Jesus says you should think about in regards to our sexuality. And so I do think this is important. But here's what I want you to do. Don't just, like, go running for the hills. I'd love to talk with you. Like, let's go, let's go out. Let's grab coffee. Let's have a conversation. Um, actually, don't drink coffee, so I'll get you coffee, and I'll get myself tea. Um, let's talk. Let's talk. How we contend for the faith is by first believing it ourselves, and then second, seeking to teach others the way of God more accurately. Now, as we come to a close and wrap all this up, I just want to acknowledge, um, I know this can be a hard message to hear. Uh, not only because it cuts against how we are culturally conditioned to think, but also because we're all sexually broken people in some way. I'm sure many of us have regrets. I'm sure some of us have current struggles. And so when we hear how sex points to the gospel, I know that for many of us, we can begin to become painfully aware of how we haven't lived out that faithfully. So as we hear this call, friends, to contend for the gospel, particularly as how it relates to our sexuality, friends, I just want to remind you that the gospel you're to contend for is the gospel that you're to live in the good of. The gospel tells you that there is no sin from your past that you're not forgiven of. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, I just want to speak a word 
from an authoritative source, God's word. I want to speak a word over your life. You are clean if you put your faith in Christ. You are washed. You are forgiven. You are loved because of Jesus. There's no condemnation for you. And there is power for you right now in this moment. You don't have to continue to be a slave to your sexual sin, but through the power of Christ, you can walk in his strength. And here's how strength comes. Particularly when we are struggling with something in secret and tempted to hold back in shame. Here's how the strength of Christ comes to us. We're told, James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Friends, remaining silent about our sin only empowers our sin by hardening our hearts and cutting us off from the healing promises of God's grace. But when we are willing to confess, when we're willing to grab a a trusted, godly friend, or maybe to get together with one of the pastors here and say, hey, listen, I just need to tell you what's going on in my life. Friends, confession of sin is an opportunity to experience healing, cleansing grace from Christ for that sin. As people remind us of the truth of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Confession is meant to be met met with gospel compassion, never condemnation. We never condemn someone for sin that that they're willing to confess. No, we remind them of how Jesus died so that there is no condemnation in him. And so we confess our sins. Because the reality is, friends, none of us are perfect. But Jesus is. Jesus is. And so we can confess our sins and trust in his perfect sacrifice for us on the cross and trust in his perfect power to give us grace that we need to live in obedience. And so friends, I just want to close by saying that we need, we must, we must never forget that the gospel that we're to contend for is the gospel that we ourselves need. And praise God, it's the gospel that we have through faith in Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer.